Welcome to Woke Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This episode is all about viruses. As you are well aware, this is not my expertise by any means, and I had to do quite a bit of research beforehand. So with that, the team and I felt that we should probably reach out for some help on this topic. With that being said, I'd like to introduce my good friend and first-time co-host, David Wiles. Dave graduated from Slippery Rock University in 2020 with a bachelor's in public health and now works as a community health worker with Cornerstone Care. On top of that, David is also a certified health education specialist and a certified community health worker. For this show, Dave and I plan to interview a very special guest on the definition of viral epidemiology, where we tackle what viruses are and discuss how viruses spread. Then we will get a grasp on the buzzwords you may have encountered over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as address viral spread modeling and how that really impacts policies. In the last segment will be an outlook for the future. We will discuss the trends suggested by the experts that accounts for climate change and human population increase, as well as urban sprawl. To leave on a good note, our guest star will enlighten us on mRNA vaccines to fight surfacing viruses in the future. So speaking of our guest star, we were delighted to get PhD student Jessica Kerr by recommendation of Dr. David Salcedo from the University of Pittsburgh. Jessica Kerr is a part-time PhD student in epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health and full-time project coordinator for a global network of infectious disease modelers. She earned an honors Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology with a minor in Spanish from Pitt in 2016 and a master's in public health in infectious diseases in microbiology in 2019. Jessica has been working in public health and data science research for over five years now. Her primary research focus for the past three years has been vaccine coverage and hesitancy, beginning with measles and now focusing on COVID-19. Other main facets of her work include engaging students in infectious disease modeling research and increasing diversity in the field of infectious disease modeling. Okay, so now that you've met my amazing cast and know what's to come, we are going to jump into our first commercial break, but please hang around because in the first segment we plan to talk viral epidemiology. So. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first segment of Viral Epidemiology. David, thanks for being on the show and thanks for co-hosting. Thank you for having me. So let's get started, shall we? The first segment, we will focus on the introduction of viral epidemiology. We have with us PhD student Jessica Kerr from the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks, Jessica, for being on the show, and it's such a pleasure having you on. Hi, great to be here. Now, I know a lot of people are familiar with viruses. It's been quite the hot topic recently, especially with COVID-19. But viruses have been in existence for, well, who knows? The hot debate between scientists is what came first, the virus or the cell? And it's kind of like the chicken or the egg debate, but we already settled that one. But what we do know is viruses have been around for a long time and have wrecked a lot of havoc. Thankfully, we have Jessica to teach us about what viruses are. So Jessica, you have the floor. So it's even debated on if they're a life form or if they're not a life form, but it's just a cluster of some sort of genetic coding. So either DNA or RNA, and it's encapsulated by some sort of protein and they require a host of some sort, a human, an animal, even a bacteria to replicate. So they can't reproduce on their own. 
and that's pretty important when we think about how they are transmitted. And even viruses can be found in plants too, right? I know you said animals and bacteria, but also in plants as well, right? Yeah, they can be found in plants also. That can lead to a bunch of crop failures and other devastating things if they get into the wrong places. Now, similar, but also majorly different uh, on the bacteria side. So we were just kind of going into what the main differences would be between the two, uh, a virus and bacteria. So Jessica, I didn't know if you had any uh, solutions to that. Yeah, I mean, bacteria are also a single cell organism, but they're a little bit more complex than a virus and they can replicate on their own. So they can kind of live in more places. You can find them in bodies of water and they can self-replicate there. They can be found in really remote places in soil. And like I said, they don't necessarily need a host to replicate, but that is how they transmit. And they're also a lot larger. So you're going to see them under a microscope, whereas a virus, you're going to need a much more powerful electron scanning microscope to see those. And I would highlight too, a key point of that you just made there would be a, a major difference between bacteria and a virus is that bacteria are, are living organisms. Yeah, viruses are sort of in this wonky place where they're not necessarily living because they don't replicate without being in a host. But they're also not not living because once they're in a host, they do replicate. Another really important difference between these two things is the use of antibiotics. So a lot of people just throw antibiotics at anything, but antibiotics only work for bacteria. They are antibiotics, antibacteria. They do not work for viruses. Well, thanks, Jessica. And that brings up the ever so important question that I think a lot of people are curious to hear your answer to is how do these viruses like COVID or tuberculosis or Ebola spread? So viruses can spread in a lot of different ways. Very simply, you need to enter a host, replicate in the host, and then exit the host to get to another one. With humans, there are a few different routes of transmission. COVID, for example, is a respiratory virus. So you inhale it, it replicates in your lungs, and then you exhale it, cough it out. There's also fecal-oral route, so you get some sort of food poisoning. There's sexually transmitted infections. You can also get infected through your skin. So there's a lot of infections that can be present with injection drug users or needles that are not cleaned properly in a hospital setting, as well as what's called vertical transmission, which is whenever a parent with a fetus is infected and passes the virus on from themselves to the fetus. So pretty much everything's on the table. You just have to know what the virus is and how it's being transmitted because nothing transmits the same. Like everything has its little niche. Yeah, it depends on um, what cell it wants to attach to, basically. Going off of the transmission from the parent to the fetus there, I was wondering if you had some examples of like the diseases that would be through that method. So one that I was taught is most common is HIV. So a parent with HIV can transmit HIV onto their child, but this is also a problem with the mumps and rubella. So that's another reason that those types of vaccinations are generally important, especially for pregnant people, is to make sure that they don't pass that along because congenital rubella syndrome is actually pretty bad for a fetus. 
So I guess I'll take this question because it kind of runs into the next portion of segment one. And it's quite simple, I'm sure on your terms, but a lot of people really don't understand what this word really means. And what is epidemiology? So kind of just broadly, epidemiology is the study of a disease in a population and how the disease changes in the population, what the risk factors are for the population and how that changes over time. This can be applied to chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes. This can apply to more environmental things, injuries and viruses, bacteria, other types of infectious diseases. Okay, so that makes sense. So we've addressed viruses, we've addressed disease spread and epidemiology. So let's kind of come full circle here and close out the first segment. So what is the result of combining then the infectious disease and epidemiology? So essentially, what is viral epidemiology? So viral epidemiology is going to be tracking viruses through a population, how those viruses spread through a population, what we can do to mitigate the risk of people contracting these diseases, how we can prevent the spread in the future, and what is working currently to treat people who already have those diseases. Pretty much for the people at home, it's the potential of the virus, your spread analysis, so how fast it spreads and uh, where it's at, et cetera, those parameters, and then also the containment measures in which you want to potentially stop that virus. Yeah, I mean, it can cover a lot. So epidemiologists study a lot of different things. Someone might focus on who do we think this virus is going to infect? Who are those people that are most at risk of getting this virus so that we can best try to protect those people? What virus do we think is going to be of most concern? And then try to use that data to prevent that virus from becoming a concern. Or where do we think this virus is going to go? And then try to contain it that way. So any who, what, when, where, why question that you can think of, a viral epidemiologist would try to look at. Thank you for the introduction to viral epidemiology. So let's head to commercial break. But when we return, Jessica, David, and I will be addressing the process of viral spread. So stay tuned. Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle, and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same Seabar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Cbar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. 
Welcome back to the second segment of Viral Epidemiology. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. This segment will be picking Jessica's brain on the process of disease spread. To leave you in short suspense, I will turn it over to my co-host, David, where he can introduce the first topic of the segment. So, Dave, you have the floor. Yeah, thank you, Sam. And as you said, the first topic here, we're going to get into something that's a little more spicy, I'd say. Some buzzwords regarding the COVID pandemic we've had all experienced lately. So regarding the buzzwords, one of the first ones I'd like to bring up today to discuss would be uh, r not R0, just to kind of clear the air on what that can mean and the difference between that with some similar viruses we've experienced. So Jessica, can you kind of walk us through firstly what uh, r not is and then compare maybe later on some different viruses for scaling purposes? Yeah, r not has definitely been thrown around a lot during this pandemic. And I don't know if that's the best thing to have been thrown around a lot. Just basically, r not is the average number of people that an infected person will then go on to infect if the population is fully susceptible. So assuming that nobody else is infected already and you are infected and then you go out and meet a bunch of people, that's the average number of people you will infect. So that really only applies right at the baseline of a pandemic. That actual number will change, and that's called the R effective or RE. It fluctuates over time. That's more of what you see with the average number of people someone infects once there's an active infection in the population. The RE number for COVID has been with the alpha variant, the first variant that we saw, it was around one, one and a half to two and a half people. With the new Delta variant in the United States now, it's actually around five. So, with RE, are you saying then would that be factoring in like a vaccine, people being vaccinated, and also have already had the virus itself, or is this just uh, later in the population? True RE would, but this is still kind of using an R naught threshold. Mm-hmm. Using modeling is really important, but as most people in the field say, models, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. And, you know, a lot of them have been extremely useful, but that's just the baseline from where we're going. To compare with some other diseases, the flu is around like one and a half people. Oh, so that's kind of like whenever people were talking about, oh, it's just as as infectious as the flu. We don't have anything to worry about. I know that was a common thing thrown out at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, that was a common thing thrown out. It was very incorrect because, you know, most people have been exposed to the flu at some point in their life, right? So there is at least a baseline immunity for the flu every year, even if there's a different strain. But with COVID, that was brand new. So we were the susceptible population. That was not applicable. With what Sam was bringing up and what you're talking about, it's honestly a good segue into herd immunity as well as one of the buzzwords. Because as you brought up how they're comparing the flu to COVID with the r not comparison with the flu, as you stated, we have all had, or not all, maybe not everyone's had the flu, but we've been around it exposed, or we know someone that has, whereas COVID was new and didn't have that. So with herd immunity, a lot of people were discussing that, what rate it needs to be, and how effective that is at you know controlling the virus in a population. So I feel that's a good segue to kind of discuss 
how important herd immunity is, what percent of population that takes to achieve it, and also how long it can take to really get there as well, and what it can take to get to that. If vaccines are an important part, et cetera, to kind of get that overwhelming goal of herd immunity. Before I go into this, I just want to say that <laughs> I know some things about this, but I'm by no means an expert. So I'll tell you what I know. <laughs> so herd immunity, first of all, should never be achieved by just getting infected. That's really bad. And <laughs> that leads to a lot of people dying. So I'm just going to mm -hmm. put that out there first. Second of all, herd immunity is basically when there are enough people in the population who have immunity to the disease that they can protect other people from getting the disease. And this is ideally achieved through vaccination. A good example that we have of this is smallpox. So smallpox was eliminated because of vaccination, because so many people were vaccinated that those who were not couldn't get the disease because there was nowhere for it to go. It just died out and then it was eradicated. We don't have polio in the United States because of herd immunity. For a while, we didn't have measles, but that's sort of coming back. And the threshold for herd immunity depends on the or not of the disease. They're related. So it seems like there is a large correlation between the two. Uh, as you get this herd immunity, as it goes up, I'm assuming that the r not then starts to decrease, right? It should, yeah. What we usually look at is as the R0 increases, you're going to need more people to be vaccinated. So measles, for example, has an incredibly large R0. It's like 13 to 15. Oh, wow. It's super contagious, very contagious. So because the measles has such a high R0, you need around 95% of the population to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. For something like the flu that has a much lower r naught, you only need about 70% of the population to be vaccinated, although we basically never achieved that number anyway. But yeah, they are directly related. Now, one thing that I wanted to address, just because I've heard it all too much in the media and just in person talking with other people, I mean, it bothers me because I have studied the, the small and the large through physics, and it's the whole mask efficiency dilemma. And I know this isn't a buzzword, but it's something that just irks me when I'm talking to people or whatever I see. And most viruses vary in diameter from 20 nanometers to about 500 nanometers, which for perspective, it's like 4,000 times as wide as a human hair. And some viruses are spherical and some are oblong and cylindrical in size. They, they vary size and shape. You would imagine that the max efficient mask would be able to stop the smallest of viruses at the mesh interface of the mask, you know, the outside world versus what you got inside. Now, as we very well know, viruses can be either projected into the air, right, or clasp onto fluid from a sneeze or a cough. So the variables that we have to consider are... What is the size and shape of the virus we are trying to contain in the mask? And what is the virus riding on? Is it air or is it some sort of fluid? Now, if the viruses are in air, right, we solely consider this as the worst case scenario to capture. 
if it's riding on spit or snot, the mesh is more likely to capture that given the size of the openings of the mesh. It just depends on what you're wearing. It deals with certain properties like viscosity and surface tension. The final piece of the puzzle then is rating your mask. Like what is your mask rating? And that's the openings within the mesh interface that we talked about. And this is highly dependent. Take an N95 mask. We're all familiar with that. That can technically be a buzzword. It's been talked about so much. The letter N represents non-oil. So it has to be used in a non-oil particulate environment. Um, and that mainly has to do with what the, the mask is made of, the material. But there are masks with the letter R, which is resistant to oil up to eight hours, and then P, which is completely oil-proof. But with respect to the environment you're working in with a viral presence, this letter actually really matters. But then you have to think about the other half of the sequence. You have N95, so we're looking at the 95. This means that the mask interface is 95% efficient at trapping matter that is approximately 0.3 microns and above. And now bear in mind, the 0.3 microns is 300 nanometers. And if you recall, I said that viruses can be 20 nanometers to 500 nanometers. So now masks can be up to 99% efficient in trapping matter down to 300 nanometers and above. But let's take a second and just think, right? These masks like the N95, the P95, R99, et cetera, et cetera, are engineered and produced to their rating with a level of accuracy. So say if you have an N95 mask and you sneeze, 100 viral particles of 400 nanometers of size. And if you look at it mathematically, simple mathematics says that there's a likelihood that five of those particles will escape the mask because it's 95% efficient. So now what if it is a different virus? And as we have talked about, there's so many different viruses of different sizes. So think about this virus being under 300 nanometers. Take the smallest case, so 20 nanometers. That means that any viral matter that isn't attached to some source of fluid will then escape your mask interface. So yeah, if you are wearing a non-rated shirt sleeve mask or a bandana or just nothing at all, you are riding the perpetuating wave of inefficiency. In an indoor venue, it makes all the difference. In an outdoor venue, not so much. The one thing that really stood out to me while I was learning thermal physics is that there are more air molecules in each breath than there are breaths taken by all living things in the last 3.9 billion years on Earth. So each breath actually contains roughly 25 sextillion molecules, and that's 25 with 21 zeros trailing behind it. Now, consider your one breath versus the Earth's atmosphere. It's pretty much inconceivable and, and irrelevant. Unless you have someone giving you mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, then you have risk of acquiring a virus airborne. But that ability to then acquire that virus is so much insignificant compared to an indoor venue. So the takeaway is, just to come completely full circle and finish this out, is that to minimize the risk, you must know your situation. What is the shape and the size of the virus? What is the nature of the air you will be submersed in? And what type of mask you are wearing? And are you in that ventilated area or are you in an outdoor area? So we have to consider all the facts before jumping to a conclusion of mask inefficiency. 
they work when they match their situation. But there is always a chance of contraction. That is why we must be precautious and listen to the professionals that study these parameters. So that's my spiel on masks. Please wear a mask. (laughs) (laughs) So continuing our conversation, it's not necessarily a buzzword, but a topic of major conversation throughout COVID would be the topic of vaccine, more specifically the new hot topic of the mRNA vaccine versus our traditional vaccines that we've all been receiving for quite some time. So Jessica, I was wondering if you could take some time to explain to us the difference and also kind of how long the mRNA vaccine has been around in comparison to the classical vaccine as well. Yeah, so research has actually been going on to develop mRNA vaccines for about a decade, but there's been obviously a big push for further development of these and more money into development of these since the pandemic. So the M in front of mRNA just stands for messenger, just tells your body about the RNA. And what they do is they just take a little chunk of the RNA that codes for the spike protein on COVID, which is the part of the virus of COVID. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the actual virus particle. So the spike talks to your body cell and hooks onto it. So that's really the only part that they need for the vaccine. They encode that into the vaccine. They throw a lipid layer around that mRNA, which is just like a fatty layer of gunk, and put that into the vaccine. And then your body is able to just produce antibodies that protect against that protein on the virus. So with traditional vaccines, They would use either a live virus, which was a little bit weakened, or an attenuated virus, which is basically just a dead virus um, with some sort of preservative material. Inject that into your body, and then your body would say, oh, here's a virus. I'm going to make antibodies against it. And that's how you would gain the immunity. But this isn't great. You know, there's always a possibility that it might revert to what's called a wild-type infection. Very rare, but we see this sometimes in the oral polio vaccine where people can end up getting polio. And then people who are immunocompromised, you know, who have transplants or are undergoing chemotherapy can't get these kinds of vaccines because their body can't produce the immune response necessary. But with the mRNA vaccines, it's a lot safer. So this new COVID vaccine is actually a lot better. It's also safer for pregnant people. So all around, uh, really great technology to have around. So this is kind of like a learned behavior. You know, we develop something, but because there's still hosts that are being infected by the virus, these hosts are then facilitating the effectiveness of evolution with viruses is what this means. So because there's no spike protein now, all that is is a fact of, of viral evolution, right? Well, there still is a spike protein, so it's shaped a little differently. Oh, okay. So it's shaped different just because it's just mutating to be more effective. It's just trying to make copies and survive. Yes. I honestly still don't know enough about this variant to really say anything. Um, well, I just mean like viruses in general. Yeah. 
not just focusing on COVID-19. Yeah. They try to infect as many hosts as they can because that's their, that's literally their purpose. They're trying yeah. to go host to host and make themselves more harder to defeat, really. Yeah. And their generational cycle is so fast because you can make hundreds of viruses in hours. So they can evolve pretty quickly. Definitely. And with the fact that we have seven to eight billion people, that does not help. No, that and just the overwhelming populations that just aren't quite vaccinated yet. You know, the countries we still haven't made the vaccine out to. I mean, that's really where this issue is stemming. The amount of population that's vaccinated until we reach a much higher rate, more variants like such are inevitable. They're just going to keep appearing. We just kind of that herd immunity is kind of what you're talking about earlier is essentially what we're going for. But at a global rate, really, with something so prominent currently. Yeah. We definitely need to focus on vaccine equity globally because infectious diseases don't pay attention to borders, <laughs> especially COVID, as we've learned. And based on, like I said, actual experts in this field have discussed, we don't know if you know we'll ever achieve true herd immunity with COVID, but we can definitely improve outcomes. People with the vaccine are five times less likely to get COVID in the first place even with the Delta variant, and they're 10 times less likely to need hospitalized and 10 times less likely to die. So even if you do get COVID, but you're vaccinated, you're still a lot better off. Definitely. And I think it's just absolutely paramount that we get the vaccines to these underdeveloped countries. And I'm not against people getting booster shots. I want people to get booster shots, um, especially the people that are most affected by this virus. But I'm seriously concerned about, like you said, getting vaccines to everybody. I, I know there's an emphasis, but I don't know if we're emphasizing it quite enough. There's an issue with us holding out for people that still need to get vaccines that have not received even their first dose, right? So we have a large issue with vaccine hesitancy in this country. And I get it. It's a new vaccine. It's scary. If you're not in this field, you know, it seems like this vaccine came out of nowhere and now we're just giving it to everybody. But that's not how it happened. And now we're trying to save all these vaccines so that, you know, the U.S. can build herd immunity. But then we have these stockpiles for these people that aren't getting the vaccine and then we aren't sending them to the places that actually need the vaccine. And it's an issue. That's a very tough issue. But I wanted to jump back because I was reading a few articles that talked about the history of mRNA. And I know you said it was a decade, but I heard even as early back as uh, 2000 that there was a, a woman that was working on preliminary research. And then because they didn't have the exact means and methods, the funding was cut. But then it was around around 2010, things kicked back in and, and they were starting to throw money at it. And now it is where it is today because of that. But this started a long, long time ago. Yeah, the theoretical methods for how to do this have been around for a while, but actual trials and development and application have been around for about a decade, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's the paradox of technological advancement that I think a lot of people miss and then there's also the paradox that we are within the realm of misinformation, and it's quite easy to fall into a bad category because you just don't know or don't know how to, to you don't know how to decipher that. Yeah. 
one thing that I'm very thankful with is that I've chosen a, a life of science. So I've found myself being able to sift through information that's given to me on a daily, whether that even be through the mainstream uh, media or just, you know, even social media or talking person to person interaction, uh, well, even talking to people that are within the science community, because there are biases everywhere. And it's something we have to be skeptical. But then there's a time where uh, you have to understand what's truly right and wrong with information and misinformation. It's not the people's fault. It's not by any means. We don't have checks and balances towards what we receive every day on our phones, laptops, what have you, TVs, people listen to radios still. And that's a problem. Nobody's checking. It's the whole thing with Facebook right now and all these lawsuits going on is that it's all clickbait. As soon as you click on something, whether it's pro this, pro that, I guarantee you it's going to show up on three different apps, at least. TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. It will be your entire feed. It'll come through in many different modes. And it essentially, without you even realizing it, will brainwash you. Oh, yeah. The algorithm will get you. Yeah. I have a personal story. Someone who was very near and dear to me um, was quite anti-vax for a, a while. And I explained this misinformation paradox to them. And now they're starting to see both sides of the story. They're starting to come around and, and understand they got their vaccine and they're starting to really understand like what real skepticism is between information and misinformation. So I just wanted to relay that to people because I think that's, it's maybe more important than being informed about the, the parameters that, that you have to provide to the public. It's just being able to decipher information between person and person in, in modes of media. So that's my takeaway, but well, thanks for addressing some of the buzzwords and explaining mRNA vaccines. Given my background, I do enjoy some data sets and nonlinear population models. So Jessica, let's discuss the nature of modeling spread of infectious diseases. What does a typical model entail and where do you grab the data from to construct visuals for folks like me to see? That's a great question. So your most basic model that you're going to use, a word that I've been throwing around a lot, it's called a susceptible infected recovered model or an SIR model. Now you sort of take that and then build upon it. You can add in exposed individuals. You can add in births and deaths and a bunch of other parameters and make it more applicable to the real world. There's also a bunch of other types of models that I won't get into because this is a very broad field. And that's just the most basic one and the easiest to understand. But you get your data from, you know, health agencies that are keeping track of cases. Um, and then you'll say, all right, how many people are in the population? So maybe some census data. And then you'll say, all right, how many are infected? So then you'll plug in your health agency data and kind of make a model out of that. This is also going to involve a lot of differential equations and programming. <laughs> and then the programs also will produce some nice visuals. So we typically use R or Python to sometimes make static, sometimes make more dynamic, fun graphs that you can sort of visualize the trajectory of a pandemic or an epidemic if it's not COVID. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated than what I just said, but that is a very basic look into what an infectious disease model does. I want to reiterate this because mathematics is the language of the universe, but 
depends on the user. The mathematics can get you there, but it just depends on who's plugging in the parameters and what are your assumptions. And it just, it boils down to is how much time you got to make this model because you can spend your whole dang life on a model and it could still be off by this much. It's, it's, it's like a, it's a chase of infinity. It's, it's never going to be there, but it can get, it's, it depends on the level of accuracy you really, really want. So it's beautiful and it can tell a very interesting tale, but also can be quite dangerous as well. But it's the beauty of mathematics. I love it. Go ahead, Dave. Uh, yeah. So touching off of our modeling conversation. So one of the most powerful tools that we have to help control viruses, disease, et cetera, would just be policy. This policy affects everyone at a very large scale and large scale effects, obviously, are the better transitions there. So going off of modeling, I'm curious what your input would be of how these uh, models affect uh, policy implementation. So there are actually some very important infectious disease modelers at the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services and the NIH. And their work greatly influences a lot of the decisions that are made in the United States. This is also true for local health departments. There are infectious disease modelers that will work there and it will sort of affect resource allocation. It'll also affect, you know, outbreak response in a COVID type era. This happens every year with the flu, right? So the CDC does this flu challenge every year where infectious disease modelers from different universities will model, you know, the trajectory of the flu and what type of variant of the flu they think is going to be most prominent and they will use those models to best inform what vaccine should be distributed how much of each vaccine should be distributed when they think the peaks of the flu season will hit so it's very influential to use models and then you'll kind of take models from past years of the flu for example see how accurate those were and then use those to fine-tune your future models also. Probably a lot of importance on obviously getting accurate data, but really conveying that in the model would be of extreme importance because you're tailoring that to the audience there to get the result you're searching. So there's probably a lot of work, not just in obtaining the data and analyzing it, but just to be able to show that to an audience that uh, can understand it and get, like I said, your desired results. So there's a lot in that process, I could only imagine there. Yeah, and a, there's a big focus right now on using FAIR data. So FAIR stands for findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. It's important, you know, diseases don't happen in a vacuum, so your science shouldn't either. You should be able to share your resources amongst fellow scientists so that they can try to replicate whatever you did. That includes your data, that includes whatever code you use, your models. A lot of infectious disease journals are actually requiring this now, that you share your code, your data, your models before you can publish. You did mention that viruses do not care about borders. So it's very important that we don't nationalize, politicize this, these things because there's a thing in the science community, the mainstream science community that involves the process of peer review. Because if you don't have peer review, you don't have any of these diversified outlooks upon the problem you're trying to solve. So if you keep it, say, in the United States, 
and never give it to, you know, China, South Africa, France, blah, 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 whatever it is, whoever it is, you're not going to be able to build a successful model across many different ranges and, and apply many different parameters. So you have to have the sort of peer review system. Right. And even like, if you just keep your data at Pitt and you don't give it to Penn State, then you're not going to get accurate models. Right. Right. This is the whole deal with bias in science. You can't see, like, in terms of political, you can't make it nationalist, you can't make it sexist, you can't make it anything. It just has to be fluent. It's for humans because without this, if you put a bias into it, then you're affecting someone down the line. So it's important to share this knowledge. Well, all right. Let's take a break here so the people can reflect on what they've just heard. <laughs> When we come back from commercial, we plan to talk about the future and what to expect. So stick around and find out. Like what you hear? Do us a favor by giving us a follow, review, and share our content on social media. Everything Steam is conveniently on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, and TikTok. You can listen to our episodes that will feature on platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. If you, the listener, have any content suggestions or want to be a guest star on the show, reach out to Everything Steam via social media, our Contact Us page on our website, or email us at all lowercase everythingsteam3.14 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and stay curious. All right, and we're back for the last segment of viral epidemiology. We plan to address the what's to come in terms of viruses, disease spread, and vaccines. So let's jump right in because I think it is so important to talk about what's to come and how often we are going to see these viruses. So Jessica, what do you see coming our way in the future in terms of the number of viruses that we will encounter? In terms of number of viruses we'll encounter, I, again, am not considered an expert in this field, but I can say that climate change is not doing good things for what we should expect. Back in about the 50s or 60s, we expected to basically get rid of infectious diseases forever and only see chronic diseases. And now we're thinking that is not true with things like deforestation and other types of urbanicity that we're seeing a lot of what are called spillover events. So this is when disease that is typically present in an animal spills over into a human population. That is what is assumed to have happened with COVID, that happened with Ebola, that happened with HIV, that happened with Zika. It happens all of the time, and it will happen more the more that we are introduced to closer proximity with animals. Another thing that's bad <laughs> is that, you know, the earth is warming, which means that there are going to be more places for disease vectors to live, which are typically, you know, mosquitoes, ticks, other creepy crawlies, things like Lyme disease are going to spread further west than they are right now because ticks are going to be able to spread further. The mosquito that carries Zika is going to be able to live for longer periods of the year, infect more people, and also go further north and further south than it currently is. And then, you know, we're going to have things like more natural disasters that will destroy infrastructure systems like 
water sanitation systems, and then we'll get waterborne diseases. Those will probably be bacterial, but still not good. So I wouldn't say it's looking great. Oh, yeah. This part of the segment isn't as happy-go-lucky as whenever we get towards the end. But yeah, you're you're 100% correct as we change this urban interface and we start getting a mixation of animals, you know, different species of animals coming together. It's just going to create nasty things. And also just on top of the deforestation aspect, deforestation is just one kind of source of it. The other thing that I think should be addressed is also agriculture, because as we expand our footprint of agriculture right now, the livestock aspect of it, where we get our meat industry covers about 33% of the habitable region on land. So as we continue to I guess as as we continue to have more people on the earth, we have to be able to feed people on the earth. So it's just increasing that pressure and pushing the urban interface or the even the agricultural interface. Just the animals in general are having less square footage area to habitate. The other thing is viruses can be dormant. I don't think we brought this up in the first segment or in the second segment. And viruses definitely can be dormant. So I have a really cool tidbit here. And viruses have been found in ice that have melted. So there are teams all over the world taking these core samples of ice sheets. It's a really cool procedure if you wanna look it up. I was uh, taking a deep dive on YouTube on it, but they have said in common that there are ancient viruses just waiting to be released. (laughs) There was a Tibetan team in 1992 and also in 2015 that discovered 33 different groups of viruses. And oh, (laughs) I forgot to mention that out of the 33, 28 were brand new to science. This poses a major threat (laughs) to life and not just humans, you know, with an increase in global warming, as we talked about, and an exponentiated increase in ice melts across the world, we are far from understanding how many viruses we are dealing with that are unknown to science, because it's just one spot. There's people drilling all over the world in China and Antarctica, what have you. One thing I also wanted to add is that 70% of infectious diseases come from wildlife. The largest cause of infectious disease spread from wildlife is what you were getting at is deforestation. Whether that is, as we talk about livestock or the urban sprawl, mining's a big one because you have to have a footprint for mining and then product harvesting. It's changing the interface. So contact is important. Animals trade viruses with other animals all the time. A hare in Australia and a tiger in Siberia will never meet and trade hosts with their viruses, but a human can. And as we've seen, humans' footprint is continuing to expand and expand. So, so humans are a fantastic evolutionary opportunity, as we were talking about, for viruses to expand. But in essence, we bring the viruses to us. We do not attract the viruses. We, it, it's all about the contact. An animal caused disease technically is a lie. It's a lie. Anybody that says that, it's, it's not even right. It is a human-caused event. I, I just think people like to feel better by saying it like it was an animal. But it's caused by the travel that we do and the effects that we cause to the natural environment to create these opportunities. It reminds me of a quote by David Quammen, a famous science writer and author of the book Spillover. It's a really good book that I got to read. So... A virus is not in our habitat, you are in its habitat. 
we humans must remember that we are a part of the natural world and we are animals. What a pig, bat, bear, bunny gets, we can get that too. So there is no exception. And I think if we look at it at the holistic picture, we're not at the top, we're within the circle. It's hard for me to even go into the question of infectious disease spread moving forward because that's kind of, we, we've literally said, it. you guys have said it, like that is the infectious disease spread moving forward. You know, everything you've kind of listed with climate change being there, it's obviously going to be much more prevalent. You know, it's a more ideal situation for virus spread. So, Jessica, what do you think about dense urban areas moving into the future and with respect to infectious disease? I mean, they're not great for preventing spread of human-to-human contact viruses, right? So if you're in a poorly ventilated apartment complex or something, and it's a respiratory virus, then you can pretty easily spread that virus to the rest of the apartment complex. If that prevents sprawling and deforestation, though, would you think that it may be better than the other way, though? You know what I mean? Like if we were all consolidated, there'd be more human to human spread. But if we're not continuing to interact with the environment in a negative manner. Yeah, I honestly don't know. It's kind of like a catch 22. It's not <laughs> it's not going to be great either way. <laughs> yeah, that's why we got to have top people like you working on these things. That way we can correctly model and, and actually fight these diseases. We just have to appropriately get a learning curve going with the population. So that way we're on the right level. There's no more science denying we can ride the wave rather than ride the peak in the trough. The thing with it, though, there's always that level of uncertainty when it comes to these viruses, disease spread and so on. There's only so much you can control. I mean, going off your quotes and what you're saying, like another one, too, when it comes to pandemics, epidemics and so on, it's it's always a matter of when. It's never really if, you know, we're more reactive when it comes to these types of things. We can't. Which is why I'm actually rather shocked that you were saying the 1950s, they thought they would eradicate infectious spread in chronic. How funny is that flipped? You know, our chronic is something that you can eradicate in that aspect because most of our conditions are just people being lazy. Our jobs don't allow you to exercise, etc. Stuff that you really can control. But infectious disease, I mean, I, in a vacuum, perhaps, but there's just so many levels of factors that you just don't like you said we're, we're in a world that we can't control we're all a part of it i just find that very interesting that that was ever even something that was kind of thought back to the whole peer review thing in the science mainstream you know you have a thought on something and then it just gets attacked on all angles it's a good thing that we don't believe that anymore <laughs> very small vacuum of what uh was there to offer regarding the viruses then very true yeah i guess that's a good point jessica i mean i'll ask you this what is the trend that we have seen, I guess, within the, the past few decades to now What in terms of how many viruses we've seen? Because that kind of gives the prediction for the future. If it's an exponentiated, if it's linear, if it's just like every once in a while we get freak or what's the trend saying? I mean, if you look at the major pandemics that have happened since we thought infectious disease was going to be eradicated, <laughs> you know, we had a pretty major flu outbreak in, in the 70s. HIV came around also in the late 70s, early 80s. There was the SARS-1 outbreak in 2003. And then there was also MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus. That's another type of coronavirus. That followed in about 2008. 2009, we had H1N1. And now 
we're sort of on to COVID. Oh, and I completely forgot to mention Ebola, which was and continues to be terrible. There was Zika in 2014-ish. That kind of rides a every other year trend, though all other diseases are not being really talked about as much in the media, obviously, now with COVID. So yeah, it does seem to be increasing somewhat in the more recent years. I mean, if you look from, we have 2009 H1N1, we have 2013-ish, 2014 was like a very major Ebola, though there had been previous outbreaks, so going back for decades. And then also around that time with Zika, and then now we have COVID. So Outside looking in, it, it's something that I think quite correlates with everything that's going on around us. And I think that's quite obvious. Anybody that's in denial of that doesn't know what's going on in the world. But, well, thanks, Jessica. I think we've talked enough from a realist standpoint for this segment. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's end on a good note, right? What do you think the future holds for mRNA vaccines? From what I know, it seems quite promising. Yeah, they definitely seem to be a promising technology. Um, they are a lot more efficient to produce. They are a lot quicker to make. They require less materials. So they can kind of be distributed a lot quicker than traditional vaccines. That's especially helpful for maybe making flu vaccines that are mRNA vaccines in the future. The turnaround time would be a lot quicker, which is very helpful for the flu since it sort of changes every year what strain we're going to be looking at. And just in general, you know, being able to produce a cheaper, easier to distribute, easier to make vaccine is good and could also help us, you know, maybe help out other countries more, more lower middle income countries who might not have those resources. And there are also some mRNA vaccines that are easier to store than the traditional vaccines. So you don't need a freezer that's negative 50 degrees Celsius or something ridiculous to put your vaccine in. And that's also a lot better for especially lower middle income countries. Yeah, that sounds extremely promising. From your aspect, Dave, what do you think on a public health perspective? Yeah, and that's what I was going to kind of highlight. On a good note of what the Omicron variant could be, kind of how we were hinting at it earlier, um, if it was to be something that required a transition of maybe a different uh, vaccine to help with the efficacy there, to see how quick that turnaround time could be, is quite promising. I know that the CEO of Pfizer came out and spoke about how it could be developed within several months if necessary. So the fact that we could have that technology already this readily available is outstanding because we can combat with, you know, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy as we've spoken about, but this can at least provide a solution intermittently and to help protect those that are most vulnerable and those that are willing to do their part to protect themselves and the others around them to stay up with the most recent, you know, variants of a certain virus, et cetera, not just COVID, but maybe in the future if something similar outbreaks, to know that we have the opportunity to transition from one to the other as quickly as possible like that is a lot, is, is very promising in a public health standpoint, because, you know, our goal here is just to keep people as well and healthy as possible. And to know that it's not something as we develop this, 
minutes is all that we have. It's going to be before we can get you the next solution. It's going to be a, a major loss to know that that can be, you know, almost eradicated is very promising. And we're still, I know we've been, the research has been around for, you know, you said almost a decade or so, but it's still very new technology still. So there's a lot more to improve on. Um, and that speed transition time could be something that's completely cut exponentially. And to see that develop and funding is now more ever getting involved in it. So there's a lot of promise. Um, and I'm excited with that because as we spoke about with how diseases and viruses might spread more now that since climate change is becoming more prominent, it's a more susceptible environment for viruses. But, <laughs> but um, even though the environment is becoming more host worthy, if our technology is still, I don't know if it's <laughs> matching that rate, but it's doing its best to keep up with it. So to know that we can at least continue to fight at a measurable rate is good because we're always going to be in a battle with it. So we're doing our best and it's, it's proving to, to work well. Um, and again, we're still in the early stages of that. So it's exciting to see. I think it provides great insight for the future to know that we still have a good chance to stay with it. So I'll put to round out, I want to ask you two, let's start with Jessica. What are your parting thoughts? And then also, do you have any advice for people out there who are listening and still battling the effects of misinformation? What are your parting thoughts? Well, I keep saying like, you know, listen to the real experts. I think it's important to be honest about what you know and what you don't know. Like I've stated a few times, like there are things that aren't necessarily my area of expertise, but I do know some things about them. Obviously, I'm still a PhD student, so I'm still learning, but we'll probably have more knowledge than, say, a random person in the general public who isn't in this field. <laughs> but I'm not at the level of like an expert infectious disease modeler, but it's important to, you know, do your part at every level of your career, I think to combat misinformation and do what you can on that level because, I mean, it was identified as a public health threat by the WHO. They identified it in one of their top threats for the upcoming year. So you are never too early in your career to at least start thinking about how you can better communicate with others about what you know. But be honest about what you don't know, <laughs> uh, in case you don't know it, because that makes you more genuine. I mean, it's just common practice that usually the most intelligent people that you will meet can admit when they're wrong or admit when they don't know. I agree. People, and I would put this more in the United States prominently as well, but to what your point is, uh, it's a it's a pride thing, too. I feel like a lot of time we're kind of taught that we all are so reactive. Most people, when you have a conversation with them, they want to respond versus listen. So when you have a conversation about something that is as politicized as this and is important, too, because we're talking about a public health crisis, it is more important now more than ever to, as you're, to your point, Jess and, and Sam, to just drop the pride and admit when you don't have the knowledge on a conversation and just kind of listen to what they're offering you. And to your misinformation points, you know, whenever you're searching a topic or listening, if you're only hearing the one side or you're only ever seeing it, 
uh, that's a good way to know that you're probably being funneled into those algorithms to continue you to see the one side. You want to expose yourself to both. And now, that's not to say you can't side with one or the other. That's totally fine. But you want to be exposing yourself to both to kind of check that because it will continue to push you more and more as you're saying the advertisements. Once they figure you out where you lean, they're going to continue to pull you further that way. So sometimes you just want to take a step back and be like, have I really looked at any other factual information or another you know, voice on that topic in a while? And maybe go and search it on your own, even if it isn't what you truly believe, just to kind of reset that button. So, but that all does stem back to kind of that real whole point there. Just uh, be uh, comfortable with saying you don't know. I mean, there's no problem with that. That's the most admirable thing you can do. And quite frankly, you can't learn if you don't admit that. So that's really where it all starts. It's just dropping that pride and being susceptible to learning. That's where it starts. If I could ever encourage anyone to do anything, it would be that. Be curious and uh, be comfortable not knowing. Admitting that, that is. Right. Thank you so much for your insight, Jessica and Dave. It was great. I'm glad that you were able to be my co-host, and I was so happy that we were able to get you, Jessica, on after uh, long email trials and uh, <laughs> talking with uh, with different people working through um, through UPMC that recommended you. So, no, thank you so much. I really appreciate you both taking the time to be on the show. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming out, Jessica. It was an honor. So it was a great time. Thanks. It was great meeting you guys. And thanks, Sam, also for allowing me to be your co-host. It was a great time and I look forward to doing it again. So that is all for this episode of Woke Talk Podcast. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my co-host, David Wiles, and our guest star, Jessica Kerr, for sharing their knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team here at Woke Talk Podcast for their collective efforts to make this show happen. So currently we are looking for someone to help us out with our editing process. If you're interested or know of someone who may be interested, please reach out to us at woketalkpodcast.gmail.com or DM us on any of our social media platforms. To wrap up, we hope you took away important information on the work that Jessica does in viral epidemiology and possibly have a better understanding of buzzwords tossed around in the news, how infectious disease spreads, and what we may expect for the future in terms of fighting viruses with the mRNA vaccines and what human behaviors and trends may bring us. For more information, you can go to the CDC website, cdc.gov. They have all kinds of topics you can learn in terms of disease spread, preparation, safe traveling tactics, vital signs, and past pandemics. Thank you all for listening to Woke Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always... Stay woke. Woke Talk Podcast would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertisement background rhythm.